You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, episode 50. And I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Today, I wanted to spend a little bit more time on the whole matter of propaganda and mind control. Specifically, I wanted to address codependence. It came up again. Again, thank you to those who are actually listening and providing feedback and asking questions. I do truly appreciate it, and it definitely helps me fill in gaps in my monologues, conversations with myself if I miss anything, or there's something that you think of while listening that you'd like me to circle back around to and address, and this is one of those times that in the episode on Goebbels last Saturday, I discussed propaganda and the nature of propaganda and how to deploy propaganda, use it to manipulate people, and how it's been used. Well, Goebbels pretty much laid out the template, and every government and every military leader since has pretty much just followed his playbook. And then in the Wednesday debrief, I read from Jocko Willink in his Discipline Equals Freedom field guide on mind control, switching from how propaganda and those who use propaganda you know, use it, utilize it to control populations, groups. But then as individuals, what can we do to take responsibility for our thoughts and subsequently for our feelings, controlling our feelings, stifling our emotions, keeping them under control, and then ultimately not only taking responsibility and ownership for our actions, but also, and perhaps in some instances, more importantly, the consequences of our choices. Today then, I wanted to circle back around like I said, to address the matter of codependence within the context of manipulation, mind control, self-control. Because two things that came up after I posted on Wednesday was the matter of codependence as it, you know, as it relates to my experience in recovery from, from alcoholism, and then also how codependence contributes to a victimhood mentality, a victim mentality, and how difficult it is, in my experience, to break free of a victim mentality when you haven't first addressed your codependence. Or maybe you have addressed codependence, but rather than turn to the left and say, I was a victim, but now I'm a survivor and I'm going to move forward and I'm going to use my victimhood as, as a teaching tool in order to propel me forward so that I'm no longer a victim, I'm no longer even a survivor. I am simply who I am. And I've embraced the warrior ethos, this ethic, and I'm going to move beyond this. I'm going to move forward. Versus you move to the right and you say, well, I was a victim, now I'm a survivor. But then you use that terminology and that attitude of being a survivor to perpetuate a victim mentality because you're always in survival mode then, and you never move past that. And I definitely was stuck in that rut for half a decade after beginning my recovery and getting into Alcoholics Anonymous and going through recovery. I wasn't a victim anymore, and I took ownership for my part in my addiction and the destruction and damage I did to myself and others within the context of my addiction. But then after I got clean and sober, I still had that survivor's mentality And I still was always looking over my shoulder, always worried about relapse, always worried about becoming my dad, and on and on and on. And I was never able to break free of that because I was always looking backwards. And I think at a certain point, what I realized was I wasn't just looking over my shoulder at the past, and I wasn't learning from the past then, but I was kind of stuck in the past. I wasn't wasn't necessarily living there, but it was definitely what I would look to in order to move forward. So I was always going forward, but I was always going forward while looking over my shoulder at the same time. And think about trying to do that in actual reality. Try running forward while looking backwards over your shoulder at the same time and see how far you go before you trip and fall. Or worse, run into a tree or a wall. And that was really then when I made the transition from victim and abuse victim to abuser, abuser of myself, abuser of other people within the context of my addiction, to then I'm a survivor, but now that survivor's mentality is keeping me trapped in my past and it's not allowing me to look forward 
And so I'm not really practicing gratitude, not really free in the moment to be present for myself and other people. And the future is entirely conditioned for me by what I did in the past or what I didn't do. So I was still living with regret and I was still trying to make up for that regret and fix that in the future, always planning for tomorrow and how I was going to make my life better so that it wasn't like the past. Being a better husband, being a better father, being a better pastor, being a better everything so that I didn't become my dad, so that I didn't fall back into addictive behavior and or just relapse altogether, which is fine in and of itself. But if you want to move forward and you want to get on with life and not always be looking over your shoulder, always worried that tomorrow might be the day that you turn back into your dad or your mom, you turn back into that person that you used to hate, when you're always looking over your shoulder, always afraid of that ghost or that monster that you used to be or that your parents used to be or your aunt and uncle or a grandparent, whatever it might be. Because I've had friends who were, who were raped by their babysitter. I've had friends who were raped by their fathers, their uncles. I've had friends who have been raped by their stepmothers and stepparents, stepmothers and stepfathers. I've had, I can't even count the number of people I know who have been raped on a date unfortunately, how sad as that sounds. And yet that moment, and I'm not judging them by any stretch of the imagination, I'm just using this as a way of, of an example. They never left that moment. They never were not 12. They were never not eight. They were never not 19, even in their 30s and 40s into their 50s and 60s. That moment trapped them like a fly in amber, emotionally, intellectually, that they were never able to stop looking backwards over their shoulder. And I have had friends who were and are incapable of maintaining a relationship because they see that man, that woman, as they know that that man or that woman's not a rapist, not an abuser, not a molester. But because they have lived for decades looking over their shoulder, haunted by that ghost, hunted by that monster from the past, they cannot have an intimate relationship with someone in the present tense because that monster is always under the bed, so to speak, or around the next corner. That ghost is always haunting them. And they know it. They've gone through therapy. They've gone through counseling. They've read books. They know. They know. But they just can't. They can't use that energy. They can't use that evil, satanic, destructive power that was unleashed on them at that moment. They can't use that to propel them forward. And no matter where they go, no matter who they become, no matter what they do, no matter how great their accomplishments in life, no matter how many awards they win, how many plaques or medals they have hanging on their wall, accolades, promotions, raises, whatever it might be, they can never not see themselves as the person that they were in that moment. And I get it. It's, I'm 48. I'll be 49 in a month. And I'm still at 49 dealing with that and, and addressing that abuse that I suffered as a child and then the, what I did to myself and what others did to me and what I did to other people while I was still in the you know, slave to my addictions. So I get it for sure. And in some cases, I can say also it's not all negative because there are people like me, like my wife and others, who we have used that and we have learned from those experiences of abuse and molestation and violence. And we have used that to propel us forward. And you never forget it. You never, quote unquote, move past it. That's not the point. And I don't think you should move past it. I don't think you should forget about your past. One of the problems that I have in the present tense with people tearing down statues of Confederate soldiers or people that after the fact turned out to be morally evil people or racists or bigots, when we tear down the statues and we erase these people's names from the history books, we are doomed to then repeat that history. There's a reason that Germany after 1945 did not level Auschwitz and build a parking garage over the top of that spot. They wanted people to remember, especially the German people, Remember for all times, this is what human beings are capable of when power goes unchecked. 
when the emotions of the mob take over, Auschwitz is what happens. If we destroy Confederate statues, if and I'm all for taking the Confederate flag down at NASCAR events or other events, but let's put it in a museum then. Let's put that Confederate flag in a museum so that in decades to come, people can go and see that flag and relearn what that represented and what that stood for and go see those statues. If you want to take them out of the public parks, great. Put them in museums. Put them somewhere, though, so that my children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren can go and see them and be reminded that this is what happens when this kind of power goes unchecked, when the buying and selling of human beings goes on unchecked for decades, for generations, this is what we end up doing. We actually make heroes out of the people who perpetuated this abominable act. So I think we have to be careful on that as well because in communist socialist ideology, that's what you do. You erase the past. You rewrite history. You destroy the past. If you think about it, was it Stalin did it? Stalin basically destroyed Mongolian culture. And then the Chinese didn't help either. So you have the Stalinist communist government and then the Chinese communist government has essentially destroyed Mongolian history. Defaced their statuary, torn down their, their monasteries, their temples, their, their, their structures, essentially erased their culture from the face of the earth. Name one famous Mongolian general. You can probably name one because he's pretty famous. But after that, Name one famous Mongolian queen or princess. Name a Mongolian who invented something or some great Mongolian spiritual leader. It's not that they never existed. It's that they've been erased from the history books and that history has been rewritten by the Stalinist communist government and the communist Chinese government. We see this with ISIS and the Taliban. We see this with the Chinese communist government in Tibet and Nepal. We see this in North Korea. We saw that we see this with Fidel Castro and Che Guevara. We see this everywhere. This is what the communist socialist ideological movement does. It destroys history, rewrites it, strikes the names of the guilty and the heretics from the history books so that they're forgotten, which then allows that authoritarian politic to reestablish itself and for that power to go unchecked yet again so that we repeat the same cycle of violence against a population of people over and over again. In essence, on a mass scale, you create codependence. Because what codependence is, essentially, and this is why it plays into addiction and, and recovery, it plays into abuse and recovery, if I'm happy, you have to be happy. If I'm sad, you have to be sad. If I'm angry, you have to be angry. That's how, that's how it's called codependence. You're dependent upon my emotional state for your emotional state. Your happiness depends on whether I'm happy or not. And I've been through this. I'm definitely in recovery from being a codependent jerk. I'm a taker. My wife is a giver. She was raised to be submissive. She was raised to be a wallflower, to not speak up for herself, to not think for herself, and therefore to just give and give and give and give. I was raised to take and take and take and take. So we're perfect for each other. That's how we met. That's why we bonded. That's why we got married. And then after we got married, we recognized, well, this relationship is toxic and it's not going to last very long because we're poisoning each other. She feeding into my worst tendencies, me feeding into her worst tendencies. So we both got help. We started going to AA and Al-Anon meetings. We started reading books. We started getting counseling. We did what we needed to do to save our marriage because we didn't want to repeat the cycle of abuse and addiction that had existed unchecked for generations in both our families. That power that is generated by addiction and abuse has a kind of momentum, a kind of inertia to it, and it carries from one generation to the next. The, the abuser abuses, and then the abuse victim becomes the abuser him or herself. That codependent relationship is hyper-destructive both in mass, like I noted, but also individually. So what can we do to protect ourselves, to galvanize ourselves from that type of mindset, that type of behavior that says, if I'm happy, you're allowed to be happy. But if I come home and I've had a bad day and you've had a good day, I'm going to destroy your day because you're not allowed to be happy unless I'm happy. 
In fact, I am insulted that you had a good day when my day was so bad because, of course, everything in the world, the whole universe orbits my sun, revolves around me, and therefore get back in line. There's always a victim in a codependent relationship, and there's always a victimizer, a perpetrator. But in a strange sort of way then, both people in that relationship become victim, victims of that, that relationship, that codependent dynamic. Both become perpetrators, both become victims. As my wife fed my need to always have control, I then became a victim of my own selfishness and my own addictive behavior. She fed it. It was like throwing gas on a fire. Likewise, her need to be a giver, her need to be told what to think, her need to be told what to do, I kept feeding that. Same thing, fuel on a fire. So now you have two fires, bonfires, and both of those fires now connect and join, and now they go from being two small bonfires to being a wildfire that consumes everything. Every relationship, every job, every class that I took, every colleague that I had, every professor, they were a part of that wildfire. They got caught up in it, whether they were aware of it or not. Because that's the nature of codependence. You just go around creating relationships, manipulating people to be dependent on you for one reason or another. When we become codependent with the government or the state, when we become codependent with any one group or team, we are easily manipulated. Because we give and we give and we give and they take and they take and they take and they create this dynamic that's dehumanizing. Rather than think for myself and speak for myself and act for myself and take responsibility for those things, I turn over that responsibility to think and to speak and to act to the state, to the group, to the mob, to the other. And then I become a victim. I perpetuate victimhood on myself. So then I begin to see myself as a victim because I'm being victimized by that other person or that other group. But then I'm feeding into it by creating the dynamic of victimhood. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And in every codependent relationship that I've ever been in or experienced or witnessed, there's got to be a giver and there's got to be a taker. Two takers don't work. They explode. They get divorced right away. Two givers, they're probably going to die on the couch of entropy because nobody can make up their mind and make a decision. What do you want to do for dinner? I don't know. What do you want to do for dinner? I don't know. You tell me. Eh, you tell me. I guess we just won't eat. So then, lastly, I want to dive into this short quote from Rudyard Kipling, who, if you've never read Rudyard Kipling, I highly recommend him. He's a fantastic poet and author. I love everything that I've read by him. Most people know him for The Jungle Book or for Kim, but he's written so many other things, and he had a tragic life. If you ever get a chance, listen to read a biography of Rudyard Kipling. But he's a fascinating character, and I don't think he gets enough credit for what he wrote, for his intellect. But on this issue in particular, he has something specific to note. And this is Rudyard Kipling, a British citizen living in India. He is alive during the time of the British Empire when, as they said, the sun never sets on the British Empire. He, if, if there's such a thing as white privilege, Rudyard Kipling enjoyed it to the T. And yet within that hegemonic empire, within that... British monolithic thing that spread out over the entire earth, and then living in India, witnessing widespread poverty, widespread victimization of a population, that codependence at the root of that relationship between the British and the Indians in this case, he saw deeply into the fabric of society, and he saw the nature of power and what happens when power goes unchecked. And he didn't ignore it. He didn't turn away from it and pretend it wasn't there. And he didn't say, well, because I'm a British citizen, this, this doesn't affect me negatively. I'm, I'm not going to pay attention to this. But listen to what he says then. As an individual, in relation to Indian society, but also then the British Empire, as it affected other societies, and him as a British person, he writes, the individual has always had to struggle to keep from being overwhelmed by the tribe. If you try it, you will be lonely often, and sometimes frightened. But no price is too high to pay for the privilege of owning yourself. 
I mean, I'll use the example of the Jungle Book since it's so familiar, to, I think, to probably everybody, whether you've seen the original Disney cartoon, which is the best, the new Disney remake, which is really good. I actually enjoyed it, but it's not the cartoon. Or you've read the story. Mowgli, this boy, is raised by wolves. He's a part of that tribe. He's a part of the pack. But then you have Shere Khan, who says, give me the boy. I want the boy. I'm going to eat him. But then as Mowgli runs from the pack because of the machinations of Shere Khan and so forth, and then he meets Baloo and Bagheera and all these other characters, and he meets King Louis. Everybody wants Mowgli to join their team because they all want something from him. King Louis wants fire. Baloo, what is Baloo? Baloo's kind of an anarchist, isn't he? He's, he's definitely a true autonomous individual self. Baloo is all about himself. Don't join those other tribes. Don't fall for their, for their, their sales pitch. Just be free. Be free. But of course, by joining Baloo, now there's two of them, and now Mowgli and Baloo become their own tribe of people who won't join other tribes. So even at a certain point, the individualists get together and form a tribe of individualists. But then at the end, he goes back. He goes back to the village and joins that tribe. But then there's a sequel to that. And you'll have to go read that for yourself to find out what happens after Mowgli goes back to the village. Because he does try and go back to the jungle. He does try to go back to his tribe. But it doesn't work out so well. But we're built for community. As, as a Christian, as an Orthodox Jew, you'll read the Bible, and it's in the very beginning of the Bible, in the, in the book of Genesis. God created the man, and then, you know, hey, it's not good for the man to be alone. So then out of the man, he created woman. And the man saw the woman and said, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And God said to the man and the woman, spread over the whole earth, be fruitful and multiply. By the way, that's not a command in Hebrew. That's actually a promise. God isn't saying, I want you to do this. He's saying, you will do this. This is what I made you for. We were built to be, excuse me, in relationship to God and in relationship to each other. Love God, love your neighbor. It's the golden rule. It's the sum of the law, as Jesus says. So we're built to be for each other. We're built to serve each other. We're created to be in community with each other. And until we find that community, that tribe, we are somewhat aimless. We're somewhat lost. I know in my own life, I've drifted from group to group over the years trying to find a group to belong to. And just when I thought I had, I asked questions that were impertinent or I behaved in such a way that did not fit within the context of the group. I, I violated a boundary or I trespassed a rule or a guideline or an unwritten ethical code. And I raised the question, I don't unnecessarily agree with this. Could you explain this to me? Or, you know, I don't like the way that so-and-so is behaving. Or I don't think that this business practice, practice is ethical. Or I just don't like you as a person anymore. I didn't realize this. I'll give you a more practical example. I can't count anymore the number of times I've been hired by someone or some group based on my personality, based on the way that I talk and express myself, based on my creativity, and they hired me for that reason. They said, we love you as a personality and we want you to be a part of this team because you have so much to bring to this organization or this company. And then once I got there and got hired, they just went to work changing me to fit their brand and how they saw my personality and the creativity that I brought to the company. They saw that and went, okay, now we just need to kind of tweak it, kind of kind of get it to, to form it up and, and so it fits in this box that is our brand. And then when I asked the question, I thought you hired me for my personality and my creativity in this area, and now you're telling me you don't want me to be the person that you hired me to be. You want me to be more the person that you need me to be for the, for the brand. And after three, four, five times of doing that, I finally realized, oh, okay, you don't really want me. You like the idea of me, but my personality doesn't necessarily agree with the brand so we just need to change you to fit the brand, which in the end means we don't actually like the person you are, but we think you have potential to contribute to the brand. 
which if you're down with that, cool, run with it, own it. I'm not. If you hire me because of my creativity, because of the way I speak or write, because of my personality, then that's what you're hiring me for. That's what you're contracting me for. And if you don't like it, don't hire me. I can go elsewhere. I can do my own thing. And that's what I was drive, I've been driving at then. I've worked for companies and organizations that were codependent. They had the codependent personality as a company or as an organization. And so they needed me to fulfill a role as a giver. And they needed to be the taker. And they needed to take from me as if I'm a, a natural resource or as if I'm some sort of like human sacrifice that they're going to throw into the mouth of their God. And there's always this us versus them mentality. They are the, the brand we're competing against. Those people are the other organization that we're in competition with. That team over there. And now you're a part of our team, so you're against that team, their team. So I would ask the question, but I have friends on their team. I have people that I really care about and I genuinely know are good people over them. Nope, their team is not good. Their team is no, no, they're our competitor. You cannot be friendly with the team over there. They might get some secret from us through you by you being loose-lipped or just simply, listen, they're the bad guys and we're the good guys. They're unrighteous, we're righteous. So are you with us or are you with them? And in the end, I quit. <laughs> I always end up quitting and resigning because I refuse to live that way. I refuse to blindly move forward with a group of people who tell me that I can't judge a person as an individual based on their character, based on their behavior, simply because you as a group, as an organization, have determined everyone in involved with that group over there is wrong. Everyone involved with that organization is, is evil or morally corrupt or unrighteous. They're not Christians, we're Christians. They're not righteous, we're righteous. They're not moral, we're moral. They're not the good guys, we're the good guys. And I just, I'm not down with that. I'm not. And if it turns out that an entire organization is corrupt from the bottom up, great. But I need to make that determination for myself based on the individuals in that organization or group. And if it turns out that they are rotten to the core, then they're rotten to the core. I recently heard someone say about the, the current state of relations between police departments around the country and the citizenry and the population. Well, one bad apple doesn't spoil the bunch. Well, it does if you leave that bad apple in there. And if you leave that bad apple in there for a couple of generations, then yeah, the entire bunch is spoiled. The entire bunch is rotten. If you want to say that one bad apple doesn't ruin the whole bunch, then you need to pluck that apple out and throw it away. You can't just leave it in there and say, oh, well, it's only one bad apple. Well, right now, maybe, but left unchecked, it will make the entire bunch rotten. And then what are you going to do? Turn your face away and pretend that it doesn't exist? Ignore the problem? Close your eyes and bite into the apple? Why? Do you like poisoning yourself? Do you like killing yourself? Because that's what you're doing. Yesterday morning, I woke up and Dave Chappelle, my personally personal favorite comedian, probably ever, and then probably after him is Richard Pryor. I love Bill Burr too, though, but just as far as truth tellers go, for me, I love Dave and I love Richard Pryor. And he put out a set, it's 30 minutes, he put it out on his, on his Instagram account and he put it out on YouTube and maybe other platforms too, but at least where I saw it at was I woke up. And it was just there on my YouTube recommendations. It's called 846. I'll post a link to it. And it's a 30-minute set. It's not funny. There's hardly a comical statement or punchline in the entire set. It's Dave Chappelle's commentary on George Floyd and the killing of George Floyd and the state of the country since. And I wish that I was as smart and able to express myself as well as Dave Chappelle, which is probably why I really respect him, because even if I disagree with him at points, the way that he thinks and the way he expresses himself is the way that I wish I could think and express myself if I was as smart as him and as well-spoken as him. So even the points that I disagree with him on, I still laugh and I still say, no, that's the truth. I may not like it, I may not agree with it, but that's the truth. 
So when I watched 846 yesterday morning for the first time, I wept. I did. I wept in bed. And tears just streamed down my face. Because it was just the truth. At least the way he spoke it. And the way that it, he spoke to me. It was the truth. And it was wish. It was, a, it was how I wish my thoughts had come out. Like I said, and how I wish I had expressed myself to a certain extent. And I watched it again this morning, a second time. Teared up again. Just because, like I said, the way that Dave puts together thoughts and the, the way that Dave expresses those, those series of events from the killing of George Floyd to the release of the video to the fallout from it to the present tense. It just hit me hard in the gut. And then I went back and revisited Richard Pryor. And in 1978, Richard Pryor told the exact same story. Not the George Floyd story but the exact same story about cops kneeling on a black man's neck and killing him. And then I went back to 1974 and Richard Pryor told the same story again in 1974, but it wasn't the same story told in 1978, but it was the same story because it was the same context. And you realize then as you follow this trail backwards, go back and read Langston Hughes, for example, a jazz poet from the twenties and thirties who's writing about this stuff, go back and read Frederick Douglass and his memoirs and his speeches and his essays. And he's saying the same thing. And I think, in my opinion, what has happened, and this is a question that's been raised before, maybe I've raised it on the podcast, I don't know. It's been coming at me so fast and furious lately, all the events of the day and trying to do, sit down and explain to each one of my kids. My oldest is 17, my youngest is 2. So I have an 8, 10, 13, 17-year-old who are asking me questions about George Floyd, about the riots, about the protests, about politics, about history, culture. But when, when have Black Lives mattered in this country, in the United States? It wasn't during slavery. It wasn't during Jim Crow. It wasn't during segregation. It wasn't during the crack epidemic of the 80s. It wasn't after they passed those crime bills in the 90s the three strikes bill, law, sorry, and all the other laws they pushed through in the 90s that put black men in jail like just exponentially more than ever before in, in history in this country. Like when have black lives ever mattered in this country? And at what point then do we all stand up together as human beings and say, I think the problem is that individuals have gotten together and they have constructed a story, constructed a narrative, indoctrinated all of us through the public school system, through the universities, and through the corporate media. And they've indoctrinated us to believe that we are in a codependent relationship with the government, with politicians and bureaucrats, with celebrity even. And we are being victimized by celebrities and by bureaucrats and by the government. We're being victimized by politicians and the corporate media. And we're being taught from, as, from, as, from the, as soon as we're able to pay attention to the TV and pay attention to our teachers in school, we are being taught to see ourselves as victims. We are taught to see ourselves as we versus they. Those people versus us. Red team versus blue team. Good guys versus bad guys. Givers versus takers. If the government says we can be happy, we can be happy. If the government says we need to hide inside and be afraid, we need to hide inside and be afraid. If the government calls it shelter at home, but then some other group calls it house arrest because the government says it's a shelter at home order, it's not house arrest. It's different. If the government says you can go out to protest, but you can't go out to reopen your business, the government is right. And those who call BS on that are wrong. We exist, in my opinion, we exist in a country where we have been indoctrinated into a codependent relationship with bureaucracy, with the government and the politicians and the celebrities and the corporate media that essentially tell us how to think, how to feel, how to speak, and how to behave. So in essence, our relationship as a society to our social leaders is the same 
as an abusive relationship. Because we're abused by bureaucrats all the time. How many small businesses got approved for loans during the shutdown versus how many corporations got millions and billions of dollars of money from the same government under the same umbrella of loans? How many small businesses have shut down as a result of not being able to pay their employees, not being able to pay their bills, not being able to pay rent on the space? And yet how many corporations are still in operation because they got bailed out by the government again? As I've said, and many have said, for generations, for hundreds of years, this is not a black versus white debate. Racism is real. Racism exists in this country to this day because it's been taught to us our whole lives. We have been indoctrinated to think in terms of color and to differentiate and find the differences rather than emphasize our similarities and how we can work together and lift each other up out of the ditch that we've fallen into to make a better society, to build better relationships between each other, to love each other as we want to be loved. This is a rich versus poor issue. This is a codependent issue. And if we want to own our thoughts and own our own emotions and own our actions, in my opinion, we have got to stop allowing these groups and these organizations and these individuals to tell us how to feel, how to think, and how to act. Because how can you look at a situation where there's domestic violence going on in the home? You look at the woman or the man and you say to that person, how can you stay in this relationship when it's so obviously abusive? Why do you stop? Why do you, why do you keep blaming yourself every time he comes home drunk, drunk and beats you? How do you keep blaming yourself when every time she says something, you just jump up and run to do it? How can you see yourself as the source of this problem? But then when the government does it to us or celebrities do it to us or some organization or group does it to us, we don't recognize the similarities there. And the reason is going back to Kipling, the individual has always had to struggle to keep from being overwhelmed by the tribe, by the mob, by the group. If you try it, you're going to be lonely a lot and you're going to be afraid a lot of the time because once they find out that you've chosen to think for yourself and not go along with the herd, once you've chosen to take ownership of your emotions and not say, you made me angry or you caused me to be sad, but rather I chose to become angry, I chose to become sad, and now I choose not to be that way. When you choose to act for yourself or act for the betterment of your neighbor, you're going to be frightened because you're going to be threatened. You're going to be attacked. You're going to be mocked and vilified. You're going to be declared dangerous or a rebel which is something I'm definitely getting into in the midweek debrief coming up, the difference between a revolutionary and a rebel. Because there is a huge difference. Hint, one wants to tear down society and rebuild it in his or her own image, and the other wants to tear him or herself down and rebuild him or herself up to be a better person. There's a difference between a rebel and a revolutionary, and we'll get to that Wednesday. But as Kipling notes, there is no price too high to pay for the privilege of owning yourself. There have been times when I've been stressed out and anxious because people are putting pressure on me to prove that I'm not a racist. As a pastor, as a neighbor, as a human being. And I'm sitting here saying, Jack, I have not been, like, I've been down with this fight since I was three or four years old. But what I realized today talking with a friend of mine is I got complacent because I know I'm not a racist and I got complacent. And the people that I associate with aren't racists. So I got complacent. And because I got complacent, I took my eye off the prize. I took my eye off the ball. And there are other people perpetuating that racist mentality in our society, systematically and individually. Again, like a codependent abusive relationship. I got complacent because I'm not a racist and my friends aren't racists. So I stopped paying attention to it. I stopped calling it out when I saw it or heard it. I stopped paying attention. I got comfortable, which is the opposite of the warrior ethic. Always disciplined, always prepared, always ready, always manning the tower, standing guard on the wall, always on alert, watching for the enemy, never becoming complacent, 
never stopping your training, never slowing down, never taking it easy, never taking the shortcut. And like Hal Moore says in his book on leadership, when things are going good, things are going good, which means when things are going good, that's what the temptation comes to sit down, have a smoke, relax, catch a nap, write a letter home, do whatever. But if things are good, that's only because the enemy is planning a counterattack. So when things are good, that's when you have to be doubly worried because you know they're going to counterattack maybe a minute from now, maybe an hour, maybe a day, but they're definitely coming. That's the time to fill up more sandbags. That's the time to dig those foxholes. That's the time to plant those mines. That's the time to clean your weapons and check your ammunition. That's the time to get ready for the enemy. And I got complacent. I did. I got to repent of that. I got to be on point. I got to pay attention again. The way that I, you know, and listen to Dave Chappelle, listen to Richard Pryor, reminded me, hey man, this has been going on for a while now. Pay attention. Pay attention. Don't get bullied by the mob. Don't get gaslit by the group. Find your tribe. That's awesome. I've got my tribe. I've got my people at the gym. I love my brothers and sisters. I love them. But the danger there, the temptation is to get complacent. If there's a place on earth where racism has no place, where sexism has no place, where racial inequity has no place, it's on the mats. So if you want to solve racism, jujitsu, everybody. If you want to solve bigotry, jujitsu. If you want to, if you want to just get rid of judging each other based on gender or sexual orientation or political voting record, jujitsu. That's pretty much my solution to everything, though, <laughs> because it's true. For me, it's true. Your mileage may vary based on your gym, but for me, my gym, it's true. But the individual will always struggle because there's always the threat of being overwhelmed by the tribe. So what I strive for anyways in my life is to maintain my individuality, my independence, my integrity, to think for myself, to take ownership of my emotions, to accept responsibility for the consequences of my choices while simultaneously being a part of this tribe of savages and of warriors. And I'll do everything in my power to show up for them and help them. And I'll help them crawl out of the ditch. I'll love them the way that I want to be loved. And I'll do everything I can to help them become better and to lift them up. And they'll do the same for me, I know. But at the same time, you still have to take ownership and be responsible for yourself. Because how can you show up for other people if you don't even show up for yourself? If you don't even know what your own presuppositions are and why you think the way you do, how can you have a conversation with another person? How can you actually converse, dialogue with another person when you don't even know why you're saying the things that you're saying or why you think the way you think? I've had conversations a lot too many to count to the point where I finally just gave up. But I've had conversations where I had to explain to the other person their own presuppositions in order that they understood what I was saying. So I've had to say to another person, I know why you think that way because I've read those books or I've watched that movie or I've seen that documentary or I've listened to those lectures. And this is, I, I hear what you're saying and I know who you're referring to because you're using his or her language verbatim. This is why you think the way you do. And this is why I'm saying what I'm saying, because the person that I'm referring to was actually debating that person that you are referring to without knowing it. And that's just, it's not a good way to have a dialogue because then they get offended that you're basically thinking for them or mansplaining, however you want to frame it. So I've just given up on it. If you don't want to have a dialogue, if you don't want to converse, if you don't want to learn, because that's why I talk with people, I want to learn. And I think out loud, so a lot of people I think don't realize I am actually listening and especially when I get excited by something, <laughs> I tend to talk even more. I know shocking, a guy who has two of his own podcasts likes to talk a lot. Especially after I get done training, I'm just, my mind is just going a mile a minute. I'm just pumped full of endorphins. And so people, somebody will say something and I'm just, uh, I'm just a fire hydrant of information and words. Again, sorry to my training partners for doing that to you. I am listening. 
And I get in the car afterwards and I say to myself, oh man, you did it again. You talk too much. Ask more questions. Talk less. Show them that you're actually listening. They don't know you think out loud. Do more for them. Worry less about yourself and about what you're going to say next. But accept everybody as they are, as individuals that are not there for you to control and manipulate. That's that codependent mentality. Everybody needs to be controlled. Everybody needs to be fixed. Everybody needs to be helped. And you're just the person to do it. No, you're not. One final example. Again, something I learned. When I ask someone if they need help, I wait for them to tell me how I can help them. Rather than say, I'm going to help you and here's how I'm going to help you. Or worse, if you want my help, then this is how it's going to look. That is not helping. That is controlling and manipulating someone. That's a codependent relationship. You're perpetuating a codependent relationship by saying, if you want my help, then this is how it's going to go down. Versus, hey man, you look like you're struggling. Can I help? Wait, listen. They tell you yes or no. They tell you how. And if they don't ask, hey, how can I help? Tell me how I can help. And then I'll tell you if I can or not. That's how you actually help someone. You let them tell you what they need from you. And then you say yes or no. That's, in my opinion, a healthy relationship. That's a healthy way of helping other people. And a lot of times people are going to say no. And guess what? That means they don't want your help. Even if you see that they desperately need help, they don't want your help. And it hurts, especially in the case of addiction and abuse. It hurts when you can't go in there and crash two people's skulls together and go snap out of it, wake up. It hurts when you see someone being abused and you know there's nothing you can do to affect a change in the relationship. It hurts when you watch someone kill themselves with drugs and you know that you can't stop them. You can't fix that. (sighs) I've watched it happen to my dad, my uncles. I've watched it happen to friends. I've buried friends because of it. I've watched it happen to people in my congregation and in other churches I belong to. I have, yeah, so many times, so many times where I just refused to accept that they don't want my help and that by trying to help them, by forcing my help upon them, I'm actually driving them away from me. I'm closing the door on any possibility of them coming to me in the future and asking for help. So in a codependent relationship, just break it off. Just break it off and make it a co-independent relationship instead. I don't need you to be happy in order for me to be happy. I don't need you to accept my help in order for me to have a sense of purpose and meaning in life. I don't need you to build me up in order for me to come alongside and build you up. But I can only do that in relation to you if I am free to own my own thoughts, own my emotions, and own my own actions. Because yeah, every relationship, there's a giver and a taker. But that doesn't mean we can't set parameters, we can't set boundaries around those, those two things to protect ourselves from each other and recognize that power that goes unchecked becomes authoritarian, it becomes tyranny. And who wants to be in a tyrannical relationship? I'm a drug addict and an alcoholic. I understand what it's like to be in a tyrannical relationship with an inanimate object. <laughs> it's not fun. I've been in tyrannical relationships with women. Thank God my wife and I broke out of that cycle of violence and that cycle of addiction and that cycle of abuse. And we're working on it every day. Because like I said at the beginning, we use our past to teach us lessons that we can carry into the present tense that will then shape tomorrow for us, hopefully for the better and for our children and for my congregation and for my teammates and for the world. But in order to do that, I first have to focus and look at myself and confront myself in a sober way and say, yeah, you have problems and you're carrying around some stuff from your past that you need to fix or work on or cage. Otherwise, you're going to fall back, you're going to get complacent, you're going to start becoming codependent again. Maybe you start abusing alcohol again. Maybe you start abusing people again. You become a dry drunk, whatever it might be. So I just declare war on myself, war on my mind, war on my heart, and say no. Mm -mm, not going to happen. I don't care if I'm lonely. 
I don't care if it hurts. I don't care if I'm frightened sometimes. I don't care if I'm anxious because of the mob, because of the group or whatever. Because at the end of the day, if somebody asked me, and I just heard this yesterday, and it really, it really hit me hard. I think it was Eric Weinstein was asked this question. And I think it's a brilliant answer. He was asked, what are you proudest of in your life? What are you proudest of? And he said, trying. And I thought, yeah, what a great answer. What am I proudest of in life? Trying, never quitting, never giving up. <coughs> Excuse me. Even when I fail, get back up, do it, move forward, keep going, never quit. So I think that's something to end on. What are you proudest of in life? I'm proudest of trying. Trying to be sober and thoughtful. Trying to be an individual, independent, a person of integrity and good character, a person who shows up for his friends, a person you can rely on trust, a person who has wisdom based on years and years of failure, a person you can lean on, a person you can ask for help, and you know I'll show up for you, a person who tries. Because in the end, that's all we can ask of each other. We don't need perfection because it's impossible. We've got to just abandon that altogether. We just need to try. Just try for each other. Don't become complacent. Don't become undisciplined. Don't abuse your freedom. Don't abuse each other. But recognize you've got some things that need to be fixed and tweaked and caged and polished and sharpened. We all do. And if we do that, if we take care of ourselves as individuals, then when we come together and form a tribe, well, we're going to make everyone around us better because we're all now striving for the same thing. We're all trying, trying to be better people, trying to be more loving, trying to be kinder, trying to be more forgiving. So yeah, at the end of the day, be proud that you're trying. And if it doesn't work out, try again tomorrow. And if it does work out, guess what? Get up and try again anyways. Keep trying. Try to get better. Because again, it's not about reaching the goal. It's about the struggle. That's the real reward. The struggle is the reward. And as long as we're trying, then we're doing it. All right, that's it. For this episode, episode 50, I thank you so very much for supporting the podcast. I thank you so much for your financial donations and contributions that support me and all that I do at the podcast. And it all goes back into the podcast to make this as good as it can be. I'm trying, there you go, to get better all the time with this, get better with my monologue, get better with expressing myself, get more efficient in communicating my thoughts to you and listening to your feedback. I really do appreciate it. And I really do appreciate the fact that you're listening and that at least from what I've heard, you're benefiting from these moments. So thank you. And I love you. And I will see you again. Well, I won't see you again, but I'll talk to you again one day. Peace. <laughs>